Very good. We're in Matthew 22. We're in the middle of a confrontation that Jesus has been having with the Jewish leadership. In the last chapter, he went into the temple. He comes to Jerusalem for the last time. He goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. And he tells them that they are making God's house into a robber's den. And he chases them out. And so the, they come and they, they want to know where he gets his authority from. And he's having a confrontation with them. He tells them several parables. And in the last parable, he told them God was going to take the kingdom away from them. Up in chapter 21, verse 43. I, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Okay, so this is <clears throat> serious business, some serious words that Jesus is having to speak into these religious leaders' lives, but he's not done. So as we go into chapter 22, he tells them several more parables to help them continue getting this picture. And so what I would just like to title our discussion this morning is a clear message for the lost. A clear message for the lost. And I would just like you to be thinking about this <clears throat> in the back of your mind. Because we've been talking all year about the idea of taking it to their turf. The God of glory sent his son to this earth. Jesus came here to serve, to teach, but ultimately to die in our place. And now he's sending us, us out to continue the mission. He is with us, but we still are called to love and serve and give the good news to other people. He's called us to take it to their turf, just like he brought it to our turf. But as we do so, we, the message has to be clear. And I'm a little bit concerned about our message sometimes, because I know from my own experience and from many of the others that I have been with, sometimes I think we're leaving part of the message out. Because we just don't want to talk about the hard things sometimes. My buddy Bill, thank you, brother. He's always looking out for me. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> uh, we don't want to talk about the hard things sometimes. But in this next parable, Jesus talks about some challenging things. So let's, let's start reading about them together. Chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his sons. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. 
One went to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So stop there for just a moment. We're not, we're only about half done. There's more of the parable, and we are going to, we are going to read the rest of it. But I just want us to start working our way through here. I remember when I read this for the first time, well, I remember my impression of it when I read it for the first time. I do not remember exactly how old I was. I think I was pretty young. But I was surprised. I thought, whoa. Because in the parable, very clearly, God is the king. God the Father is the king. And it says here, he's enraged. He sends his armies and he destroys those murderers. And that shocked me. But if you look at the verse before it, it shouldn't be quite as shocking. The rest of those people seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. So they were murderers. So the king was removing wickedness from his kingdom. So we have to keep that in mind as well. But I want us to just go back and start looking through the parable in a little bit of detail, okay? To get a a clear picture of the story. All right, so, uh, well, before we do, uh, let me just make this point. James Boise, who's one of the men that I've been reading, who, who wrote about this, says that some parables are really tricky to understand. But this one is all too clear. And the reason it's so clear is because everything in this parable is talked about multiple times in other places in the Bible. So very clearly in this parable, the king is God the Father, and the son is, he sent his son to the world. And the wedding feast that he's inviting them to is the wedding feast of the Lamb. God is inviting the world to heaven to be with him forever. They're invited to the feast. So go back with with me to verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. So notice, this is already the second invitation. They were already previously invited. Very possibly they had already responded that they were interested. He says, so have them come. They're unwilling to come. Verse 4, again he sent out other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, behold. So here's the third invitation now. Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And this, of course, is a picture of God's invitation to the world. It cost him everything. Not only did God make us, but after mankind went astray, Jesus came to the planet and gave his life 
as a payment for our sins. And so we call it the age of grace. We're living in the age of God's grace. We're living during the time when God is not judging the world. God is not, remember what Jesus said? God causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's true. We've been getting lots of rain. Day to day, we've got lots of sun. God has poured out his grace and he's calling. I don't know if you've also noticed, but, but I have. We're living in the information, information age. Actually, I think they called it the information age sort of when I was a kid. And now we're like quadrupled 10 times, 100 times that as far as the availability of information. God's word can be heard with, you know, pull out your phone, touch of a button. It can be heard. And he's calling, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink of the water of life freely. It's God's free invitation. And he himself has paid the price. Well, he continues with his story. Verse 5. They paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. So they just didn't really seem interested. If you turn to Luke chapter 14, uh, Luke also tells the same story. And he adds a few more details. And I won't take the time to turn there. But basically, one of them just says, well, you know, I, I bought a farm. I need to go look at it. And so it's that kind of excuse. It's not mandatory things. It's not urgent things that are distracting them. They're just making other choices. They're just really not interested in God's offer. And then you really get to see the heart of the people uh, that are being invited here in verse 6. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, of course, what's, part of what's happening here is that through a parable, Jesus is showing these religious leaders what they're about to do. He's like putting his finger right on the problem. Because within a matter of days, this is the last week of his life. Within a matter of days, they are going to arrest him, put him through the mockery of a trial, and crucify him. Kill him in a brutal, uh, humiliating way. So he's telling them what they're about to do right up front. This parable is all too clear. And it exposes many people's response to God's gracious invitation. People make excuses. People show indifference. Sometimes there's even outward rejection and abuse in the process. And I want us to just look at where that comes from. You can keep your finger here. Uh, but just real quickly, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Everybody there? 
Here's where that comes from. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So God is pointing, Paul's pointing out, God through Paul is pointing out there the condition of all mankind. That we have been born sinners and that we are actually under God's wrath. It's a challenging thought to think about. But Paul admits that's where I was. That's where we all are. And that's where this response comes from to Jesus' invitation. It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? So what will the king do? Going back to Matthew chapter 22. What will the king do? Number one, he will judge sinners. Verse 7 says, But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. God is going to judge sinners. We are now in the age of grace. But there's coming a day when the Lord's going to return and he's going to judge the nations. And I remember C.S. Lewis writing this picture for me that was really thought-provoking. He said, when, when, that, when the sun arrives, all shadows will disappear. And people who have not invited the Lord into their lives, you could say they're a shadow, basically, is what he's saying. All shadows will, will be gone when the king of righteousness shows up. He will judge sin just simply by his presence. But he also has another response. There's a second thing the king will do. Because this is an ongoing journey, right? People over the last 2,000 years have been saying yes or no to him. What else will he do? Verse 8. He said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. The second thing that he will do is invite everyone. Compel them to come in. The invitation is open. Rich, poor, young, old, weak, strong, every nationality, every color, every part of the globe. Invite them all. I want my house to be Filled. And he has a plan for doing it. If you, I want to go back to Ephesians 2 and read those very next verses. We read about our problem. But in verse 4, he goes on. Right after he says, 
we were all by nature children of wrath. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the second thing that he did or is doing is he's calling the nations. He's calling every individual to come and discover him, to come and put their faith in him, to come and be forgiven of their sins. There's only one qualification. Okay, and going back to Matthew chapter 22, that's where he, what's he in, what he ends this parable with. Verse 11. Okay, he's, he, the, the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes and said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So there's one qualification to be in the wedding feast. Wedding clothes. What in the world are the wedding clothes? Friends, the Bible is filled with this, especially the New Testament. The wedding clothes are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what they are. And I want you to read with me from how many of these are we going to read? At least three. Because I just want you to see how crystal clear this is in the Bible. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. This is what Jesus' message was all about. You must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's what, it, what his message was all about. It's why he went to the cross and died in our place. Philippians chapter 3, I hope you're there. Start with me in verse 8. Here's what Paul says. More than that, I count all things to be loss. He's talking about his own righteousness, all the things he worked for as a Pharisee, the whole first part of his life. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. In other words, by doing good deeds. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I just want you to read this several times because I think it's just that important to understand, to have rock solid in our hearts. 
Romans chapter 3. Start with me in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now notice again, this is apart from the law. Hey, this is barring my good deeds. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We talked about how we were all there. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's the gift of God. This righteousness of Christ is the gift of God. And the last one that we'll read is Ephesians 2. We're just going to read it again. We just read it a minute ago. But here it is again, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the wedding clothes are the righteousness of Christ. So I need a volunteer. Who would like to come up and risk it all and be a volunteer this morning. All right, come on up here, my friend. I'm worried. You're worried? Don't be worried. All right, this is our buddy Nathan. He's going to be 13 this week. Give him a hand. All right, so... Nathan and I don't look that much alike, right? But I have this favorite coat that when it's cold, I wear everywhere. Now, put my arms in it? What's that? Do you want me to put my arms in it? Yeah. Okay. Nathan doesn't look a lot like me, but if you were in a crowd and you saw him from the back for just an instant, you might go, is that Sam? So when you become a Christian, when you invite the Lord Jesus into your heart, and God looks down from heaven, who does he see? He sees his son. When he looks at you from heaven, thank you, Nathan. When God looks at you, he sees his son, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, has taken his robe of righteousness and put it around you. And when God looks at you, that's what he sees. The Bible also declares, says it in many other places, the Bible says that you have been declared righteous. It's not something you earned. You know, you didn't do enough good deeds, help little old ladies across the street, give all your money to the poor. You didn't do all those things for this. Not that those are bad things. Those are great things to do. Because we've been sent to continue his mission. So God wants us to do those things. 
but that's got nothing to do with your entry into heaven. Your entry into heaven's got everything to do with what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and him wrapping his robe of righteousness around you. So, boy, what, a, what good news we have for the world that we live in. And that's where we started this morning. We talked about a clear message for the lost. You know, you, you ask yourself, you might ask yourself, why would Jesus say such hard things to these Pharisees? I don't think that, that God's calling you to go out and every person that you meet, you know, you tell them the hardest things. But these Pharisees are ingrained. They are deep in. They are already making their plan to put Jesus to death. Even though he's the son of God who's spoken truth into the world. And so he's just giving them the truth. And sometimes great wickedness requires great rebuke. But we do need to be clear in our message. We cannot... Maybe there was a day when we could just go to the world and say, God loves you. Maybe. But I don't think we can do it anymore. The world has got to understand that God hates sin and that one day he will judge it and that we need a savior. So just as clear as Jesus has been, so you and I, with, with great grace, just like the Lord Jesus, we want to be gentle, we want to be kind, we want to be gracious. We're living in the age of grace, but we want to be clear and we want people to have the whole message uh, that God is giving them. Let me just leave you with this one last thought. Some of us guys are reading a book together called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by a guy by the name of Mark Deaver. And here's one of the points. He says, as you go and tell people about Jesus, there needs to be three attitudes that you have. Put these three components together. One is honesty. Okay, and that's part of what we've been talking about this morning. Honesty, clarity. Yes, God will judge the world. Yes, you do need a Savior. The next is urgency. This is an important message. This is not a message we can neglect forever. Because our neighbors, friends, family members need the Lord. Honesty, urgency, and finally, joy. Those three pieces, because there is great joy in this message. Just like we were discussing, you can be forgiven and have made peace with God. So what a beautiful picture as we go and share with honesty, with urgency, and with joy. Well, please pray together with me. And um, I don't know, we might have to find another song to sing to close things out with today. Lord, we just are so thankful for, for you today. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross of Calvary something we could have never done for ourselves. But you have just opened the way 
so that all who will may come. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their own personal Lord and Savior, that they will put their faith in you today. Lord, as we get ready to go downstairs and enjoy some good food, would you just take the the lessons you've been teaching us today and seal them tightly to us, Lord. Help us not to forget, whether it's making mental notes or real notes or appointments in our calendar. Lord, help us to take action on things you've put into our hearts today, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.